Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador came to power with the promise of a complete transformation of the country. To speak about what have been the real changes that have occurred under his watch, and to explain why should the U.S. be aware about the return of its neighbor to an all-powerful presidential system with little checks and balances and to a vision that is rooted in the 1970s, that it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Luis Rubio, chairman of the think tank Mexico Evalua, and for full disclosure, former chairman and my boss of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Luis, it is a true pleasure to have you on the podcast Mexico Matters today. Four years ago, you said that President Andrés Manuel López Obrador represented a radical shift from the last four decades. What have been the most important changes so far? And was it a transformation, or would you use actually another word for it? Hi, Mariana. It's great to, to be back with you. It's a great opportunity, and thank you for the honor. Indeed, President López Obrador constitutes a radical shift away from four decades of systematic though not always thorough integration into the trade and financial circuits of the world. His point, however, has been slightly different of what we thought at the beginning or what I thought at the beginning. His, his point of departure is that Mexicans did not benefit from closer integration with the U.S. and that the country needs to introduce protection mechanisms against what he considers to be a dangerous course. The most dire damage that I see, I think he has uh, inflicted upon Mexico has been to the country's frail democracy, as he has undermined every vestige of checks and balances. It is not surprising that the economy is doing so poorly. The most serious damage he has caused is to the network of institutions, regulatory agencies, and other counterweights that were built to both institutionalize political power and diminish the Mexican president's propensity to abuse that power. Truth be told, it wasn't very difficult for him to dismantle or weaken many of those institutions, largely because few of these entertained significant social support or even recognition. But the key is that his actions have proven that the power of the Mexican presidency constitutes the crucial challenge for development. It is too much power concentrated in one person, with literally no checks as, he's, as this president has proven. Where the president has maintained the course is on financial policy, and that's what has surprised many people, particularly in the financial markets. Although he has radically altered the structure of the government's budget, he has maintained a low fiscal deficit. This is not because he likes it, but because the lesson he derived from the crisis of the 1970s and the 1980s is that excessive deficits lead to evaluations, and this to a president's downfall in people's minds. And for a president that cares for his popularity above all else, this is extremely dangerous and therefore his attitude in, in the financial realm. Uh, Luis, as you mentioned, he has really been able to dismantle the economic, the social, the democratic institutions that took more than 30 years to build. 
but he has also damaged Mexico's credibility among investors and as a reliable, trustworthy partner of North America. Why should this matter to the United States? And what should it matter when the United States and Canada speak about friendshoring? Well, the, despite the president's wishes, uh, Mexico is an integral part of North America. If he could, I'm certain he would change the geography. But thankfully, that's not within his powers. <laughs> Mexico is critical to the U.S. and secondly to, to Canada in at least two ways. First and foremost, the border is a critical challenge for American security and interests. It would not be excessive to say that Mexico matters much more to the U.S. and than China or Russia, or for that matter, Afghanistan or Iraq. The common border not only brings two very distinct societies together with contrasting histories, but two radically different social and economic realities. Beyond popular complaints like who's to blame for violence, drugs, weapons, and the like, for which both nations share blame, the fact of the matter is that there are plenty of issues and challenges that the U.S. faces for whose solution Mexico's participation is crucial, if not indispensable. Yes, drugs flow north, as do migrants. These two challenges are enormous components of daily accusations among both sides of the aisle in the U.S. It is little understood that the enormous and powerful American market demands both of these items, and the border is an inevitable entry point for both. And surely, Mexico could get it, its act together and, and it could limit the flows of drugs and people, but this would not alter the facts. If they didn't enter through Mexico, they would enter through another place. Canada was a preferred one earlier on and, and the Caribbean was in, in the 1980s. Mexico, I believe, is critical to the U.S. in terms of security and to its economy. It is often not understood how critical Mexico's industry has become to America's competitiveness in the world markets. And without Mexico, many critical industries in the U.S., especially automobiles, chemicals, electronics, and others, would not stand a chance. Both economies complement each other in ways that have become structural and especially welcome situation in this geographical, uh, geopolitically charged era. It is, it is a time in which friendshoring should help Mexico greatly, and it is helping Mexico greatly. But my concern is that if Mexico doesn't put its act together, it's not going to remain so for, for a long time. And we're certainly moving close to a very important milestone. As you know, the United States and Canada have requested consultations under the new USMCA trade agreement regarding Mexico's energy policy. A panel might be created with dire consequences for Mexico. Yet in the midst of this very sensitive process, AMLO, as he is known, has replaced the Secretary of the Economy, as well as Luz Maria de la Mora, a woman with ample trade experience who was actually leading this negotiation. They were both replaced by people who lack experience, at least trade experience, but at the same time are much closer to AMLO. Luis, how do you interpret this change? I don't think it's too difficult. President López Obrador holds very strong convictions about what went wrong for Mexico. He's certain that, that the reforms that the country went through during the past three and a half or four decades were the wrong ones. And he wants to correct that by recreating the 1970s, an era in which the government controlled a good chunk of the economy, uh, held the private sector and labor in, in a tight leash, 
and protected the economy from foreign competition. In that era, the energy industry was 100% government owned, and he wants to recreate that too. So the issue is not, not rhetorical. As I said before, if he could, the president would move Mexico away from the current border. And you're right, the Mexican economy and through remittances, a good chunk of society is totally integrated with the US, both socially and economically. Rationally, one would want A, to secure that relationship and B, to deepen it, but not Lopez Obrador. You have to bear in mind that his perspective is always and only political. He does not care for trade agreements or rules of the game. From his vantage point, this is about sovereignty. He knows full well that his government is violating the agreement, USMCA, uh, the one he was instrumental in getting ratified by the US Congress three and a half years ago. But he cannot accept retreating from his signature legislation on electricity. So he's preparing for a match or mismatch against uh, the US and Canada on the issues brought by the USTR about electricity. The new team is fully political, hates technically competent people, and is gearing up for a political fight. The president also knows that he's likely to lose this panel and is ready to live with the consequences, whether he understands them or not. And, and that's the, the risk that he's running in this, in this circumstance. This may make sense, be relevant or irrelevant, but it's, but it's how this will go down over the coming months. You will know that many, many Mexicans are rooting for President Biden on this match. If the president is actually willing to lose, then let's assume for a second that this panel is created and then it decides to impose tariffs or some other compensatory measures. What do you think will be the reaction of Lopez Obrador? And what do you imagine as some of these compensatory measures to be? Well, that would be a decision by the U.S. government. Uh, it would be a decision based on what they aim to accomplish. Uh, if they aimed at items and at goods that punish American consumers, it would be shooting the U.S. in the foot. On the other hand, if um, they target less relevant or less transcendent goods like luxury goods coming from Mexico, that would hurt Mexico more than the U.S., they could also try to target things that hurt Lopez Obrador directly. I don't know if it's possible to target remittances, but that would be one possibility. I don't know because that maybe if it's considered to be a tax, then it wouldn't work. However, he could punish producers in some of the, of the president's very strong strongholds. Like agricultural? Exactly, like Michoacan, like uh, avocados mm -hmm. or lemons or, or the like. So this is, it's, it's not obvious that the president uh, will lose out in this one. But I think that the U.S. would have to decide how to go about it. What López Obrador is clearly betting on is that the U.S. would not dare impose sanctions on Mexico. Wow. And it is certainly in the commercial realm where lies one of the strongest U.S. tools. Luis, do you think they're waiting until after the U.S. midterm elections because they don't want to risk having a confrontation with López Obrador right now and risking, I don't know, the creation of a caravan at the border or more migrants or drugs heading up north? I'm certain that the U.S. government has decided not to go for a panel before or to announce it before the U.S. midterms for obvious political domestic reasons. But 
What will happen then depends on, on the USTR, much less than the White House. USTR was created by Congress, not by the, not, not by the, it's not part of the executive. It's a very odd institution, but the point is that the US government most likely doesn't have the power, legal power, to, to stop the USTR from acting. What they could probably negotiate with the, would have to negotiate with the Commerce Department is what to target if it came to, to imposing sanctions. It's not going to be easy, and particularly because if the numbers that have been worked out by specialists, which would amount to some $30 billion, this would be one of the largest sanctions ever imposed on any country. Yeah, there is certainly a distinction between a political negotiation that AMLO is trying to do versus the technical negotiation right. that USTR will just impose. But the USTR is, is a technical entity, not a political one. So, of course, they have latitude, but I don't believe that they can... They have their own clientele, and, and, and U.S. companies that have been harmed are pushing them to act on this. And many of those companies that are behind this dispute have interests in other countries, and they could not let Lopez Obrador get away with it, because then they would be facing the Turks or, or, the, or the Nigerians or wherever they have a business that would attempt to change the rules once the contracts have been signed. Completely. You will undermine the whole credibility. Luis, you mentioned the Mexican economy is linked to the U.S. economy. We certainly depend for it for more than 80% of our exports. It is our largest source of foreign investment. More than 4% of our GDP actually comes from remittances. And AMLO is aware of this reality. And yet he's constantly not only trying to disengage Mexico from the United States, but he's also using pretty harsh rhetoric. And at the same time, he's flirting with China and Russia. In fact, President Putin recently revealed that Russia entered into a space agreement with Mexico in which Russia will be allowed to install the GLONASS system, which is equivalent to the GPS system in the U.S. How do you interpret this position vis-a-vis -vis the United States and his desire to play or to align himself closer to other autocracies in the region and with Russia? Well, one, one has to, to realize and recognize and accept that Lopez Obrador is not a man of the 21st century. He's a man of the 20th century. And the issue for him is not rhetorical. He, he dislikes the U.S. and would rather move Mexico elsewhere. Like in the 1970s, he enjoys, as it were, putting pepper uh, on their Uncle Sam's nose. He knows that he has no power to influence issues or decisions such as the Ukraine war. His is a principle stance. He wants to be against the U.S. That, that's what boils down to. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, in, in, in a way, it's simply this, this bothers the U.S. Let's do it. Not because they, he, has to, he wants to harm the U.S., but because he simply wants to put pepper on their Uncle Sam's nose, literally. We may agree or disagree on whether there is... A rationale to explain this stance, but playing with the underdog, or in this case with an enemy of the U.S., used to be the core element of Mexico's government going back uh, in the day. But there is no internal resonance uh, today in Mexico beyond a very small left-leaning constituency, but, but it, it, it resonates with him, and that's, that's uh, the point. It's all about him. Lopez Obrador is not aligning himself with Putin. He's simply criticizing the U.S. That's the way he sees it. They will be, would be read in a different way in, in, in the U.S., but that's not the way he sees it. He will not do much more than vote at the U.N., or even that has not been not really materialized, and rant about this or that. 
but will not do anything beyond the rhetoric, which is the core of his governmental activity. His whole day is spent in developing and producing his daily so-called press conferences, which is the way he leaves his governing. Foreign policy or relations with other nations are not his thing. Everything is for foreign, for domestic consumption, not for real action in the international realm. He has traveled twice to the U.S. and once to, to a couple of Central American countries and Cuba. That's all he's done. Luis, why is it politically rewarding for López Obrador to play that anti-American card today? And I say today because the reality is very different than what it was in the 70s. That is, a vast percentage of the population today works on the in the expert sector. There are young people and are much more informed. And many have a relative living in the United States. Why is that anti-American card still resonating? The president uh, does not understand and realize or accept that most Mexicans are linked one way or the other to the U.S. through either their daily activity, economic activity, their jobs, or through remittances. That, as you well point out, are issues the president does not see as, as particularly relevant. He does not realize or accept that this does not resonate with the population. Most Mexicans want to improve their livelihood, move to the U.S. or try to move to the U.S. That's what explains the enormous numbers of, of Mexicans crossing the border, which is different from what happened the last eight or ten years, where most of those crossing were right. Central Americans. That's not, no longer true. And that's no longer true because the Mexicans don't see opportunities. But Mexicans ha are used to a perfect permanent contradiction between the rhetoric and, and reality. Uh, that used to be natural. Today, it's an exception. But it, it's something that Mexicans are used to simply because this is nothing new. It's, it's, it's much more extreme, but it's nothing new. Yeah, and many more are voting with their feet, as you said. Luis, let me change the subject a little bit to the economy. In the next two years, the world will probably face a series of very harsh economic challenges from lower growth, higher inflation, energy insecurity, increased debt levels, on unemployment, among others. In this context, are you concerned about Mexico's macroeconomic stability and our ability to fulfill our financial obligations, which have been growing, by the way, as a percentage of GDP under this administration? What, what is your sense? I think that the president has been very keen on maintaining uh, economic stability. He has been catering to big investors. He has a frequent meeting or at least a video meeting with uh, two or three of the largest Wall Street types that, that have invested in Mexico. He receives uh, chief executive officers from various companies often. But of course, this is not working to the advantage of Mexicans who have seen their livelihood decline. You're right that they have contracted more debt and they are increasingly doing so. Part of that is because the, the economy has shrunk and therefore the percentage of GDP has increased simply as a result of simple, a simple division. But they do believe that they, can, they have a latitude to increase hiring debt. But with more debt, they hope they can restart the economy. I think that the issue of trust is much more important, and I don't think that investors have any trust in this government. So that's what has held the economy down. Mexico is one of the few economies, and certainly the only one connected to the U.S. that has not recovered from the, the pandemic, despite 
the fact that the U.S. has and, and the U.S. constitutes Mexico's largest and most important engine of growth. He has expressed some happiness, López Obrador, with the Afores or the Mexican private pension system. He has already made a few changes regarding commissions. Do you foresee a more radical transformation? The Afores have been on his sides for a long time. Uh, they represent the privatization of savings and conferring more control over savings to individuals, to the, to the savers. From a big spender like President uh, López Obrador, the Afores are a most desirable pot of the, to be expropriated. But once again, that would go in line with the way things worked back in the day. So, so far, the government has changed the regulations that govern the Afores, forcing them to buy many more government securities, which comes close but short of expropriation. My guess is that they will not take this additional step. But you're right uh, on the bigger issue, which is that this is no time to be tinkering even more with the economy. The good news is that time is not on the government side. The bad news is that Mexican presidents in general, not only López Obrador, have a propensity to make bold moves, usually very bad moves, when things become dire, as they are likely to become so at the end of this administration. And that's nearing every day more. A lot depends on exports. Uh, so the health of the U.S. economy is today the single most important variable in this regard. If that begins to falter, then we could expect other very bold moves, whether it's on the forest or somewhere else, I don't know. Luis, just briefly, what bold moves did other presidents take when facing the heat? And what could you imagine, besides the Afores, that AMLO could do? Sure. Um, the biggest of them all was the expropriation of the banks in 1982. The president had lost total control, but he wanted to save his image. And he decided to expropriate the banks in one single uh, decision, for which he later changed the constitution, which also shows how seriously powerful these presidents can, can be and how a bold move can make them. All the presidents had no choice but to devalue at the very last minute. The, I don't think there are many more uh, relevant examples, but López Obrador is, is one man of that era. And so something right. of that type uh, would not be inconceivable. Let me now move to another very important issue for both Mexico and the United States, which is security and the increasing militarization. Secretary Blinken was recently in Mexico, and in a press conference given as part of the high-level security dialogue, he ruled out that the presence of the armed forces in public security tasks in Mexico, as well as their participation in various areas of the economy, do not question the commitment of the Mexican government towards democracy. Luis, is the United States misreading the risks? I think it's easy to make both arguments, but let's start by differentiating things here. One thing is what is happening in Mexico, and another is how that might impact the U.S. Also, the U.S. has its own interests, and not all events in Mexico constitute a risk for the U.S., So what Mexicans perceive to be risks does not necessarily mean that those are risks for the U.S. Having said that, I do think that the U.S. government is underestimating the depth of what is taking place in Mexico. Few, if any, American key players understand just how transcendental NAFTA was to Mexican stability, not only economic, but also political. 
President George H.W. Bush uh, and his national security advisor and Secretary of State and the like understood full well that that was much more of a political move than an economic one, than surely an economic one. And yes, as President Trump forcefully argued by providing legal recourse to investors, NAFTA helped many American companies move to Mexico. Yet, I have no doubt that the U.S. government at the time that NAFTA was being negotiated in the 90s, they well understood that this might happen. But they were also concerned with Mexico's development, not because they cared so much about Mexico in itself, but because they saw a prosperous Mexico to be a primary objective of U.S. interests. The danger today, as I see it, is that Mexico could unravel and that would impact the U.S. far more than a few more jobs in Mexico or a few less migrants in the U.S. Now, on the military, there is no question uh, the role of the military is growing dramatically. The question is, what does this really mean or might mean? I have two answers to this. One is that the biggest change is not about the role of the military uh, or the role that it is playing nowadays in all the areas that you mentioned, but the fact that they now pledge allegiance to the president and not to the state or the constitution. This is a far-reaching change. It is not clear to me whether the change is only at the level of the highest echelons of the army or if it represents a whole entity. The other change is about money. Corruption has been a trait of the Mexican government ever since the current political system came into being almost a century ago, and corruption surely affected the military or benefited the military, but never to the extent that it does today. So my biggest concern is bringing back the army to its previous role, something that will not be easy to say the least. Perhaps Mexico could join NATO. <laughs> yes, for sure. Luis, two years from now, Mexico is going to have its presidential election. Do you think the opposition stands any chance? This is a big question. First, one must acknowledge uh, one thing, wh which is that the opposition, despite its nearsightedness and lack of credible leadership, was able to win nine of the 10 biggest cities in the 2021 midterms in Mexico. So I wouldn't dismiss them just, just yet. Second, a lot depends on how things look 20 months down the road. Today, Morena would win outright. There's no question whatsoever. That's the president's party. But that that's not equally obvious later on. Prime Minister Wilson in, in Britain once said that a week is a long time in politics. 20 months is surely an eternity. How will the economy be by then? How will violence be by then? The, these things cannot be simply dismissed outright. More important, and to your point, will the opposition parties get their act together? What role will Movimiento Ciudadano play? It's a small party, but in a three or four way race, it could be a kingmaker. And critically, will a credible candidate emerge capable of attracting the vote and leading society in a better direction? All of these are imponderables that only time will answer. I would not sell the opposition short or the Mexicans, much less the Mexicans. Lopez Obrador might be popular, but he's no saint. Everybody knows it. Having said that, Lopez Obrador is an exception in Mexico's presidency and not a repeatable personality. Whomever wins that election in 2024 of whatever political party will have no choice but to correct course. Obviously, each potential winner would slant things in different directions, but the politics of destruction that have characterized this administration will be over. The question is what will happen 
afterwards, what will have been left to work with. And that's not something to be too anxious to know. No, I will certainly not sell the Mexicans short. No doubt, whomever wins the next election will have to correct course, no matter how hard it will be, and it certainly will. Luis, unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Please come back. Thank you so much. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you all very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 